Now, in addition to the previous uses of meditation for kishuf, sorcery or black magic, and we saw that one was able to achieve that by meditating on certain shemas, tumas, incantations, and as a result of that, you would be able to control the hashpois, the influences or the forces of the sitra achra, in order to, of course, manipulate, uh, push aside malachim and thereby manipulate specific kochas. So in addition to the previous uses of meditation for kishuf, one can utilize the procedural device or method of meditation upon various incantations also to control and manipulate shadim or demons. And this is a second area of uh, uh, black magic or sorcery. And that is, the, of course, the area where one engages the use of demons or shadim. This practice whereby one can manipulate or control shadim, demons, uh, to do something for you, this practice is called demonology. And that is a subdivision of <coughs> kishuf because it is accomplished by, basically by the same method and that is by meditating on shemois tumois or incantations. When various shemois or incantations are meditated upon, then one can control shadim or demons to push aside angels who are in charge of koiches. They then can interfere with the normal prescribed operational pattern of a given koyach and alter this to a special operation, operational pattern of that given koyach to produce deviations in natural law and physical reality which of course result in black magic. We see therefore <coughs> that physical phenomena and natural law can be altered either through the hashpos, the, the influences that emanate from the sitra achra or the koichisara, the evil forces, as a result of meditating upon specific shemois, tumois or incantations. <coughs> or the second way is through the manipulation and control of shadim or demons that is also brought about, uh, about through meditating upon specific incantations or shemois tumois. Now the former phenomena whereby one engages the hashpois of the sitra achra, the influences or causative forces of the kichasara, the evil forces, this, of course, is called sorcery or black magic, or in Hebrew, ma'asekishofim, black magic or sorcery. And the latter, <clears throat> where one controls shadim, again through various incantations or shemois tumois, uh, this is called demonology, which is a subdivision of the branch of sorcery. And this is referred to in Hebrew as ma'asekishofim. So ma'asekishofim, is the general term of sorcery, and Ma'ase Shadim is a subdivision of the branch of is a subdivision or branch of sorcery, and which is called in English demonology. Both phenomena belong to the term of kishuf, sorcery or black magic, which is the general term for all these phenomena. Now, all these forces, whether from the Sitra Achra or from Shadim, have specific limitations and parameters within which they can function and operate. They cannot exceed or surmount these boundaries which the Rabbani Shalom has imposed on them. The Rabbani Shalom has given or has ordained 
that if one utters certain specific shemois, tumois, incantations, then this has the effect of being able to control either demons, shadim, or the hashpoos of the sitra achra. This is what the Rebbe has decreed. But, of course, you cannot engage them to do whatever you want. There are specific boundaries, limitations, that these shame, that these uh, uh, shadim, or that the hashpos of the sitra achra is limited to. There are only specific uh, functions or outcomes that can be achieved as a result of these shemos tumos, and this is all, of course, within the decree of God. Now, the Egyptian magicians, among other occult methods in their repertoire, used demonology also to duplicate the miracles of Moshe Rabbeinu. Besides ma'asek kishofim, sorcery, they also used demonology, the control of shadim, again through various incantations. Thus they were unable to duplicate the miracle and plague of Kenum, lice, for as Rashi says over there, actually by the plague of lice, Rashi says this, that a shade cannot control a being which is less than the size of a grain of barley. In other words, that is a specific limitation imposed by the Rabbanu Shlalem, uh, in terms of engaging a shade to do something for you. It cannot control a being which is less than the size of a grain of barley. And of course the lice, which is less than the size of a grain of barley, therefore the shade had no power over and they were using demonology to duplicate uh, the alteration of natural law in order to duplicate, of course, the miracle of Mishra Beno. Thus, as we see that even though a shade could push away the malochim, the angels, in charge of the koiches vekinim, lice, it could not alter any of the normal prescribed operational patterns for these koiches to special operational patterns because the koyach counterpart in the Geshem world was smaller than a grain of barley. And lice, of course, is smaller than a grain of barley. Therefore, since they used the phenomena of demonology, they could not control lice because that is smaller than a grain of barley. Now, this is again one of the limitations imposed by the Rabbanu Shlam on the sphere of power and control of the Sitra Achra and Shadim. Of course, when they saw this, when the Egyptian magicians saw this, that they could not control Kinem, they realized that the power of control of Meshua Beno, in other words, the power that he possessed, could not possibly come from the black arts or kishuf, sorcery, but it could only come from a divine being of omnipotent powers and abilities. They therefore said that the power and influence that Meshua Beno has clearly indicates that it comes from a divine being of total and absolute superiority over all physical reality. In other words, they knew that if Moshe Rabbeinu was using the powers of Kishuf, then he would not be able to produce such an alteration of natural law, namely controlling lice. So they realized, because they themselves were masters in those areas, so they realized therefore that the powers of Moshe Rabbeinu to deviate, to alter natural law, could not possibly come from any of the black arts. The power that he had to alter natural law 
and in this case, specific case, to produce kinim by the hundreds of billions lies over Egypt. This power could not come from kishofim, sorcery. It had to come from a divine being, which obviously was greater than the power of demonology or the power of the sitra achra. So they realized this about Moshe Rabbeinu. And it's interesting, as I stated previously, that uh, they used the expression when they spoke to Parai and they told him that they couldn't duplicate Moshe Rabbeinu's alteration of natural law, they said that it is the finger of God. And what they're referring to, of course, is that uh, it, which refers to the power, knows the power that Moshe Rabbeinu has to do these things results from the finger of God, not the finger of the Sitra Achra or the finger of the Shadim. The ability, the wherewithal that Moshe Rabbeinu has to produce such an incredible alteration of nature results from the finger of God. That's the expression that they used when they spoke to Pare. <clears throat> so they told him that, and of course it does not derive from any other source such as Kishof. Now, as stated previously, the phrase finger of God is a true metaphor of what occurred. Man influences and controls the world through his ten fingers, which of course is part of his hand. But man interacts with the world when he does something with his ten fingers. In man, therefore, each finger is an instrument that he uses to influence and control what he wishes and desires. That's what fingers are. Each one is an instrument that will enable man to interface with the world and to accomplish what he wants. Therefore, anthropomorphically speaking, the Rabbanishnam also influences and controls all reality through his ten emanations, or spheres, and these spheres, or emanations of God, are referred to as the ten fingers of God. Thus, the Egyptian magicians used the correct phrase when they said that the plague of lice has come about not through the influence and control of Kishif or Shadim, but rather through the influence and control of the Rabbanishlam using a finger or a sphera, a spiritual causative force. So it's really an exact metaphor. When they refer, of course, to God's powers, they call it finger, because when, man, when you refer to man's power, you refer also that it is the finger of man. Now, man who resembles the guise of God was given ten fingers or instruments with which to influence and control the world because the Rabbanishlam uses ten spiritual causative forces or ten uh, instruments, spheres, which he uses to influence and control the world. In other words, we have ten fingers which we use as instruments to influence the world. Just because the Rabbanishlam has ten fingers or ten forces which he uses to influence and control the world. And by the way, this is part of the concept of man being made or formed in the image of God, which will be discussed at another time. In other words, we resemble the image of God, so therefore just like he has ten instruments, ten forces, spheres or emanations, with which he interfaces, he interacts, and he accomplishes whatever he wants to do, we also have been given ten instruments, therefore we have ten fingers, with which we can interface and interact with the, with the world. 
And of course, this is a concept of dumus odum ot kim. But that's another, another idea. But that reveals this profound idea that we resemble the guise of God. And if you look at your own body, you can actually figure out what the Rabbanishlam has to interact with the world. Now, besides the ability and the power that the Sitra Akhra, the uh, forces of evil, and Shadim or demons possess to push aside angels that oversee the Kochus of physical reality, they also have the power to obstruct the Hashpois, the divine influences that God sends down, that emanates from the Rabbanishlam as it is being transmitted from one angel to another angel according to the system of the Rabbanishlam that God uses, in other words, he utilizes and sets up to convey his Hashpois. If the Rabbanishlam wants to do something, so therefore what he does is he emits, sends forth a causative force, and that hashpah, that influence, or that energy, is transmitted from angel to angel until it reaches its proper destination. What the kuchis hurrah, what the forces of evil can actually do, is they can obstruct a malach at some given point in the order of sequence of transmission. They can obstruct the malach, and they can retard or uh, um, impede the flow of that hashpah, and therefore they can prevent man from receiving certain influences that the Rebbe wants man to have. They can actually interfere with the transmission of hashpahs that the Rebbe wants men to have. And the Rebbe of course, decreed that they can do this. And of course, you may ask, how, how or where do they get the koyach to do this? How does the Sitra Achor, the forces of evil, get the power to obstruct a divine influence that is being sent toward man? And the answer is because of the sins of mankind, or more specifically the sins of the Jews. Those sins give him a tremendous amount of power, the Sitra Achra. And what he does with that power is that he can stop the Hashpah, the divine influence that comes down toward mankind, and he can actually stop men from being the recipient of this divine influence. But does it stop there? And the answer, of course, is no. Because when we say that the, what, that the Sitra Achra stops the Hashpah from coming down, and thereby influencing man in a positive way, what is also true is that he can now usurp that power, that hashpah, for his own ends, namely to do evil. So when man sins, two things happen. First of all, the sitra achra has the power to obstruct divine hashpahs, divine influences or energies that would give man specific things, and that's the first thing that happens, that he can obstruct these hashpos from, from being transmitted from angel to angel. And the second thing is that he can usurp these hashpos for his own use to achieve what he wants to achieve. And we all know what the Sitra Acha wants to achieve, and that is tremendous hester, or to promote the belief, of course, that either God does not exist, or the fact that there are many independent forces besides God. That, of course, is his objective, and he can take the hashpos, those divine influences, and use them for his own good, for his own benefit.
So that's an important idea to know. Now, so that's something else that the Sitra Akhra is able to do. Because of these various powers the Sitra Akhra and Shadim have, the Gemara says the following in Sechta Sanhedrin, that Rabbi Yochanan said, why are all these phenomena of the Sitra Akhra and Shadim called Kishofim? And I have translated Kishofim as sorcery or black magic. So Rabbi Yochanan asks, why is it that the word that is used to refer to sorcery, why is it called Kishofim? So he says because they have the power to counteract the community or the assembly of angels on high. And he says therefore that the abbreviation of the word Kishofim, which is Chof Shin Peyud Mem, Kishofim, is really an abbreviation of Kichesh, they counteract, Pamayo, the assembly or the community, Shemalo, of those beings that exist on high. So Kishofim is really an abbreviation of the following phrase, that they counteract the community on high, which of course refers to the angels that oversee nature or, or physical reality, or the angels which transmit the hashpos, the divine influences, down to, of course, man. So therefore, Rabbi Yochanan says that kishofim, sorcery is called kishofim because it is an abbreviation for uh, beings that can counteract the community on high. That's why it's called Kishofim, sorcery or black magic. That's what Rabbi Yochanan said. As said before, even though the Sitra Akhra and Shadim have such enormous power, which can be activated by meditation upon specific incantations or Shema's Tumais, they can only operate within certain limitations and boundaries. They cannot do whatever they want to do. They have specific guidelines and parameters within which they can operate. Even when they, the Sitra Akhra or Shadim, do not exceed their limitations, they can still be totally neutralized and rendered impotent if their functioning is precluded by a decree of the Rabbani Shalom. In other words, as I said, Shadim or Sitra Akhra, even if you invoke or activate them by meditating on specific incantations, they can only function in certain limited areas. That's one uh, obstacle or one uh, um, restriction on their functioning. A second restriction on their functioning is that the Rabbani Shalom, if he wants to, can neutralize the entire sequence or process that activates them. In other words, that even if you meditate on specific shemas, he can neutralize or he can make the shadim or the hashpos of the sitra achra, he can neutralize or render impotent these hashpos or the activities of the shadim. Now the Gemara, the Talmud explains that this is particularly true in the case of individuals whose merit or schus is so great that they are protected from on high, so that those who wish them harm are rendered impotent. And the Gemara relates incidents <coughs> where uh, there was an individual 
Rabbi Hanina, <coughs> who's walking, and there was a sorceress behind him, muttering incantations and so on, trying to harm him. So uh, he told her, he said, look, I have nothing to worry about. <coughs> because what you, if what you want to do, <coughs> if the rebellion wants it to happen, he will allow your sorcery to work. <coughs> and of course, if he doesn't want it to happen, he will not allow the sorcery to work. And the Gemara then comments and says <coughs> that this is especially true in the case of Rabbi Hanino, <coughs> because his chus, his merit is so great that the Rebbeinu, of course, will protect him and will not allow even that which should normally occur. The Rebbeinu will not allow it to occur. In other words, normally this sorceress should have been able to harm Rabbi Hanino by her uh, invoking and meditating on incantations. But the Rabbanishim, of course, prevented this from happening because of the schus or the merit, the great merit of Rabbi Hanino. And uh, so we see, therefore, that even if you operate within the boundaries that the Shadim and Sitrachar can operate, the Rabbanishim can intercede and render, of course, um, uh, the power that the Shadim and Sitrachar have he can render it impotent, he can neutralize the entire process. Now, I, I, uh, I just wanted to mention an important idea, uh, which is not too well known, and that is that there is an interesting segula. A segula is an uh, assisting device, a helping device. There is a segula that the Nefesh Chaim, Rav Chaim Velozhin, one of the most famous students or Talmidim of the Vilna Goyen, the Gro. He says a very interesting thing in the Nefesh Chaim, and he says a very important segula that if one employs, then one can stop evil forces from harming him, uh, not only in the sense of evil forces, but also in the sense of the representative, representatives of those evil forces. For instance, if a guy wants to harm you, then if a person employs this segula, it will remove that threat. Now, what is this segula? He says that if somebody thinks about Ein Oidmo Vadoi, he contemplates Ein Oidmo Vadoi, what that really means, then the harm that this guy, for instance, wants to do, it will be neutralized. And what that really means is that Ein Oidmo Vadoi simply means that nothing exists besides God. So if there is an opposing force to you, or force that wants to harm you, the truth is, is that it is not an independent being of God. It is really God behind that being, that is powering that being, that is energizing that being to harm you. If you somehow recognize that the real power, the real threat emanates not from this individual or this, let's say, guy, whatever, but rather it emanates from the Rabbi then the threat is removed. In other words, the schus or the merit of understanding and realizing that there is no such thing as a threat external to God or independent of God. That anything that wants to harm you is really God himself giving power or energizing this agent to do it for him. If you recognize that, then that schus, that merit, that recognition itself will prevent that agent from harming you. And Rav Chaim Velozhin says that this segula, 
this device is Boduk Umanuse. It has been tried and proven to be true. So therefore, if you ever encounter somebody who wants to harm you, whether it be an animal or human beings that look like animals uh, or whatever, if you mechaven, if you intend and you think about and you realize that that being itself is only powered by the Rebbein and is the Rebbein that is a threat, so to speak, merely the recognition of the fact that the real threat or the real power is really the Rebbein if you recognize and say, aha, I know it is you, God, and not this agent, it merely looks like that agent, then the Rebbein will neutralize and render... Um, Impotent, uh, impotent the, the guy from actually, or the agent from actually harming you. And like I said, that Rab Chaim Velazhin says that this is Bodik Imanusa, that uh, if one employs this, this will always work. In summary then, we can organize or sum up <coughs> the ideas that we have discussed regarding the fourth spiritual phenomena or experience called um, Kishuf sorcery or black magic. <clears throat> and we could sum it up again because I pointed out that um, if we look at the phenomena which occurs, the spiritual phenomena which occurs from the standpoint of its four elements, this can serve to us as a uh, summary device. And the first uh, element in the sequence toward attaining the uh, spiritual phenomena which I had gone through, the first idea or element was procedure. And we see, therefore, that the procedure in order to invoke sorcery, kishif, or black magic is the meditative method or device upon a particular um, shame tumor, an incantation. This is the procedure, of course, for attaining the phenomena of uh, Kishuf sorcery. Now the second element in the sequence toward attaining Kishuf or sorcery is called the results of the procedure. And we see that there are two types of results that issue forth from the fact that you employ the procedure, which of course is the uh, meditation on specific incantations. And the first is type A, that there is an alteration in a koyach, in a transcendental force, from the normal prescribed operational pattern to a special operational pattern by either a hashpo'o, an influence of the sitra achra, or the influence and power of a shed, a demon, uh, brought about by pushing aside the koyach's angel in charge over it. And that is the first type of result that, uh, of course, issues from, forth from uh, the procedure. The second type, or type B, of result, which, uh, of course, occurs as a result of the procedure, is that there is an attachment of one's nefesh or soul, to the sitra achra, or to spiritual impure evil forces. There is actually a devakis that is achieved uh, when one meditates on incantations one becomes attached, his nefesh becomes attached to the sitra achra or to spiritual impure evil forces. Now, the uh, 
third element in the sequence toward attaining this phenomena is what's called the ultimate consequence of the procedure. And that also is two types corresponding to the two results of the procedures of the procedure mentioned. And the first type of ultimate consequence from the procedure is the alteration and deviation of physical reality or physical phenomena and natural, natural law, which is called kishif, sorcery, or black magic. This is the first uh, type of uh, ultimate consequence which results from the procedure. The second type, which uh, corresponds to the uh, result B of the procedure, the second consequence of the procedure, which corresponds to the second or type B result of the procedure, is the infusion of tremendous spiritual pollution, unholiness and impurities in one's nefesh elyena. There's a tremendous amount of tumor uh, that a person attains as a result of, of course, uh, his attachment to the sitra akhra. Now, in addition, one, uh, one uh, attains occult knowledge and information. In other words, he has access to different kinds of knowledge and information which is not available to most people. And I had mentioned what that could be, future events, secrets not known to men, and so on. And the fourth element in the sequence toward attaining this spiritual phenomena of course, are the conditions to be met, and basically, the only condition that one has to exercise is a precise execution of the correct procedure. This, then, is the four uh, elements of the sequence toward attaining the spiritual phenomena or experience of Kishif. This, then, is a summary of the fourth and last spiritual phenomena and experience that could be achieved through the procedure of meditation. Upon, cer upon certain Kabbalistic instruments, namely either Shema's Kedoshim, Holy Names of God, or Shema's Tumois incantations. And with this we close the discussion of uh, the four spiritual states that, or spiritual phenomena or uh, experiences that can be achieved, of course, through the procedure of meditation. In other words, using meditation as a device or a method upon a specific object of that meditation, which of course is either a name of God, a Shem Kodesh, or a name of an evil force or a demon, which of course is a Shem Tumor. We have now completed our discussion of the four spiritual phenomena or experiences that could be attained employing the meditative device or method. These four spiritual phenomena or experiences were, and I'll just repeat them, the first one we had covered was Navua or prophecy. The second one was Ruach HaKodesh or divine inspiration or the Holy Spirit. That was the second phenomena, spiritual phenomena. The third spiritual phenomena is Shinui Teva or white magic. And the fourth spiritual phenomena which I, we had discussed is Kishuf which of course is black magic or sorcery. And we have covered each of these four areas, four spiritual phenomena, in extensive detail. Now we have seen that each of these experiences brought the meditator in contact with the spiritual dimensions or existential planes. And we see that in a vua, an individual becomes attached to 
the divine presence, the Shekhinah, or the glory of God, the covet of the Rabbani Shalom. In Ruach HaKodesh we see that the meditator, <clears throat> that his soul becomes attached to a Holy Spirit, or a Malach. In Shinoi Teva we saw that the individual interfaces with uh, Malachim, not that he actually attaches himself to those Malachim, but that through his meditation, divine hashpos influence Malachim, of course, to uh, interact differently with the Kirchus. So therefore he interacts, so to speak, within the world of angels, which of course is Oilem Yitzira. And the last uh, spiritual phenomenon, which is Kishof, or sorcery, we see that the meditator, inter the meditator interacts with Oilem in the world of the Klippos, whereby he influences the Hashpos of the Sitra Achra, or Shadim. Now, we have also seen that the uh, spiritual phenomena of Navua prophecy and the spiritual phenomena of Ruach HaKodesh, or divine inspiration, uh, were incredible spiritual elevated states for any person that achieved them. Shinoi Teva, on the other hand, was seen to be a phenomenon which was utilized rather sparingly and only by advanced individuals uh, in terms of uh, their spiritual level. In other words, people who had achieved an advanced level of spirituality. We also saw that Kishif was, uh, was, a, was terrible in its ultimate outcomes for anyone who engaged in it. And uh, because, as I mentioned previously, the uh, a person who had attached himself to the Sitra Akhra, the evil forces, would ultimately, ultimately be destroyed because that is exactly what they seek, to destroy mankind. So we saw, therefore, that it, uh, it, it, would, uh, it would promote for the meditator terrible consequences. And the outcome of anyone who engaged in Kishif, of course, it would be disastrous. And therefore, this was expressly forbidden by the Torah for anyone to engage in it for any reason at all. As can be readily observed, the procedure of meditation as a spiritual method or device occupied a fundamental and essential place within the Judaic framework of the Avodah, the task or the service of man, in terms of what the Rabbani Shalom expects of him. And if used, in other words, if meditation is used in a proper and appropriate manner, it could bring for its practitioner incredible elevated and ecstatic spiritual experiences which have no equal in any other experience he could possibly go through. Now, what I'd like to speak about now, that we have concluded the four different spiritual phenomena that a person can achieve through the meditative device, I want to talk about meditation and its relationship to the Avodah. In other words, the Avodah and meditation's place in it. Now, I have said that the procedure of meditation as a means of achieving various spiritual states or initiating various spiritual phenomena is really part and parcel of the avoid of a Jew. The avoid of a Jew, the service, the task, the labors, the work of a Jew. And therefore, as such, since the meditation, the procedure of meditation, is really part of the avoid of a Jew, 
And as such, it plays an important and crucial role toward bringing a Jew to his ultimate intended purpose. And we know that the, in, the ultimate intended purpose of a Jew, of course, is, of course, being a resident of Elam Habba. Now, of course, the entire Avodah plays that role, that crucial role of bringing a Jew to the ultimate intended purpose. But since we say now that the procedure of meditation is also part of the Avodah, then the Avodah, of course, which brings a Jew toward Elam Habba, since meditation is also part of the Avodah, then, of course, that will play a crucial role in bringing a Jew also toward uh, his acquisition of Ilm Habbo. <clears throat> in order to properly understand the relationship that meditation has with the Avodah, let us analyze the area of Hashkafa called the Avodah. Now, the meaning of the word Avodah means either service, a labor, a work, or a task. Let's take a look at the Avodah itself. Let's analyze the area of Hashkafa called the Avodah. And from that, we can then understand the relationship that meditation has with the Avodah. And, um, of course, we can spend a lot of time in the Avodah, but I don't want to do that, because primarily what I'm interested in, of course, is describing spiritual states and comparing the spiritual states with states which have been experienced in the East. But I'd like to take some look at the Avodah in its general concepts, to look at the essence of the Avodah. And by and by by the way to uh, to sort of like comprehensively summarize the essential ideas of the Avodah. Now, what's in order is a good definition of Avodah, a really technical, precise definition of, of Avodah. I'm going to define it as the following: the Avodah is a term which refers to or compromises or encompasses all those observances, performances, actions or behaviors which when done by particular individuals brings about a tikkun to creation, a tikkun hakloli, which means the complete or entire or total rectification or restoration. Okay? That's the definition of the Avodah. Thus, any observance or action which has the ability to massacre creation, to bring around a rectification or restoration to creation, is included in the concept of Avodah. All these observances, all these components of the Avodah are in effect instruments or devices which will rectify or restore creation to its intended former state. Thus, all instruments of Tikkun, are subsumed under the term Avodah. That's a precise and succinct definition of Avodah. To summarize, the Avodah is all those observances and actions and performances that are done by a certain kind of individual, and we will see that as an individual who has the power of Tikkun. But in any case, the Avodah is all those observances or performances or actions or behaviors that, that are done by particular individuals that is able to bring a Tikkun to creation. That is the Avodah. Now, we see also that the Avodah or those observances which, are, which comprise the Avodah 
are really instruments for Tikkun. So therefore the essence of the idea of Avodah really is that it is a, an instrument for Tikkun of creation. If an observance can bring a Tikkun to creation, it is therefore an instrument for Tikkun, it is part of the Avodah. If an observance cannot bring a Tikkun to creation, even if it's done by a Masakin, then it is not part of the Avodah, it is not an instrument for Tikkun. So therefore the concept of Avodah is synonymous with the concept of instrument for Tikkun. And any uh, observance that can bring Tikkun is part of the Avodah. If it cannot bring Tikkun, it's not part of the Avodah. It's as simple as that. That is the definition of Avodah. Now, there are three distinct ideas mentioned in the definition of Avodah, and I want to just discuss these three ideas. The first idea mentioned in the definition was the particular individuals who employ the instruments of Tikkun or engage in the Avodah to bring about a Tikkun of creation. That was the first idea that was mentioned in the definition. The second idea mentioned in the definition was the actual observances and actions themselves, which are the instruments of Tikkun. This was a second idea which I mentioned in the definition. The third idea which I mentioned in the definition is the outcome or effect of the Avodah or the Tikkun itself. Now, the first idea, in other words, those particular individuals who actually employ the instruments of Tikkun to bring about a Tikkun of creation, we call them a Saknim, those people who can restore, rectify, fix or correct creation. The second idea, which refers to the observances and actions themselves which are the instruments of Tikkun, this is called the Uifin of Tikkun, the manner or the mode of Tikkun. The third idea, which is the outcome or the effect of the Avedo or the Tikkun itself, this is called the Tikkun, the Tikkun itself, in other words. Now, these three ideas, the Masaknim, the Oifen of Tikkun, and the Tikkun itself, is what's called the Avedo paradigm, or the Avedo model. And in that model lies the essence of what a Jew is really supposed to be active or engage in. Now, let me mention some ideas of the Masaknim, those people who can bring about a Tikkun to creation, and also some ideas about the Tikkun itself, before we proceed to the main uh, material, which is the Oifen of Tikkun or the Avrida, the method or the manner or the mode of, of Tikkun or the actual Avrida itself. Let's talk about the Masaknim, or a masakin. What is the definition of a masakin? Again, we need precise definitions. The definition of a masakin is whoever can bring a tikkun to creation by employing the avoido or instruments of tikkun. That is what a masakin is. Whoever can actually bring about a tikkun by employing the avoido or the right instruments. Now, <clears throat> it is important to know that the mere engagement by anyone in the Avodah does not bring Tikkun. Just because somebody is going to engage in the Avodah, and let's assume the Avodah now is mitzvahs, just because somebody will do mitzvahs does not mean 
that he will bring a tikkun to creation. That person, in order for a person to be a masakin, in order for a person to correct or rectify creation, he must be ontologically connected to all creation for this to occur. Since he is going to masakin creation, he's got to be connected to all creation. In other words, he has to be connected to all four worlds, all the ilomus or all the existential planes which I had mentioned previously. And of course, those are the worlds of Ilumatsilus, Ilumbria, Ilumitsira, and Ilumasia. This individual, in order for him to massacre the Bria, has to be connected ontologically to all four worlds, and that is the same as being connected to all creation. That is the only way this individual can massacre creation. Therefore, an individual who is connected ontologically to all creation, if he engages in the Aveda, in those instruments that can bring about a Tikkun, then, lo and behold, a Tikkun takes place. If an individual who is not connected at all ontologically to any of the Ilomas, if he engages in the Avoida, which is the instrument of Tikkun, nothing happens. Even if this individual engages in the instrument of Tikkun, since he is not a Masakin, nothing happens. He cannot bring a Tikkun to creation because he is not rooted, he is not connected ontologically to all creation or to all the four Ilomas. Now, <clears throat> Let's take just a brief look. Who was the first Masakin? And of course the answer to that is Adam Rishon. He was the first Masakin. Because that is what the Rebbe intended. That all mankind should be able to restore or rectify creation. Therefore Adam Rishon, the first man, of course, was given that power. Adam Rishon was the first Masakin because God intended all mankind to be Masakin the Bria. Now, after Adam failed to do the task that he was assigned to, namely not to eat from the tree of, uh, of, knowing, of, of the knowledge of good and evil, the power of Tikkun was then passed on to all mankind. So therefore, all Masaknim were all men, not just Adam Rishon. Again, we find the power of Tikkun amongst all men. Now, after mankind continued sinning, then what the Rabbani Shalom did is he took away the power of Tikkun, the ability to rectify or correct or restore creation to its original intended state. And I will speak about what that, wa that, what that was, the intended state or the original state of creation, a little later on. After mankind sinned, then the Rabbani Shalom removed the power of Tikkun from all mankind and he gave it only to Avram, or he allowed Avram to keep it because Avram anyway had it, because he was part of mankind. So, because Avram was the only one who was doing the will of God, the Rabbani Shalom allowed Avram to maintain it, to keep it, and he took it away from all mankind. In other words, no other peoples, no other nations or individuals uh, had the power of Tikkun. From now on, in order for a, an individual to have the power of Tikkun, he had to become Jewish uh, in order to get this power. Now, that meant that only Avram Avinu had the power of Tikkun and no other nation. But the Rabbani Shalom gave the nations one more chance that they can restore the power of Tikkun to themselves. And the last chance was Matan Torah, when the Rabbani Shalom gave out the Torah to the Jews. 
Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, was the last opportunity for nations to regain their status as Mesachnim besides the Jewish nation. And that would only transpire if they had accepted the Torah. Now, what the Rabbanu Shalom then did is that he examined the spiritual levels of each nation to see exactly where they were at. And he determined that the nations were so immoral and so evil that even if he were to offer the Torah to them, they would not accept it. In other words, based on their spiritual level, he saw that they would not accept the Torah. Therefore, he decided that he would not give the power of Tikkun back to the nations, and the ability to Masakin was sealed off, closed forever, to all nations of the world. In other words, the availability of the Masakin power was sealed off for all time. And the general principle behind that is that everything is governed by a time limit. Even, even spiritual merits, spiritual uh, <coughs> benefits or schusim. In other words, if the Ramoshim wants to give something to somebody and that person has to deserve it, he's got a certain time frame, time limit from which to earn that. If he does not do what has to be done to earn this spiritual uh, um, uh, benefit, then that person loses it. And that's it. The time limit is over. That person is no more, uh, no more can receive. That gift is no more available. And that's exactly what happened with mankind. He gave them 2,000 years for them to be engaged in righteousness. And of course they refused. He then took it away from them and he gave it he left it with Avram. But however, he decided again to perhaps give them back the power of Tikkun. He assessed their spiritual level. He saw that none of them would accept the Torah. And therefore, the time period had elapsed. And therefore, they could no more uh, receive this power of Tikkun. The only way a non-Jew can massacre the Bria is if he becomes Jewish. What was close to them, of course, was the fact that Nations other than Jews could no more massacre the Bria. However, an individual, if he would want to become Jewish, he can, of course, gain the power of Tikkun. In other words, now only individual Goyim, by becoming Gerim, proselytes, can regain the massacre status and have the power to massacre creation through the Avoida. If a Goy does not become Jewish, then he cannot massacre the Bria in any way. Thus, the ontological or existential connection to all creation was removed from non-Jews and it remained intact only by Jews. Jews, therefore, are the only Masaknim today. After Matan Torah, Jews are the only ones in the entire world of all mankind that can actually correct, rectify, or restore creation to its intended state, the state of Tikkun. Another idea which is important to know is that if a person can massacre creation, he of course also has the power to mechalkal creation. And we know what kilkal is, it is the power of damage or destruction. In other words, the same ontological connection that a massacre has to all the elomus that allows for tikkun also allows for kilkal. It's the exact same process. Once a person is rooted, attached, or connected to the existential higher planes, then he can influence them, either for good, 
to bring a tikkun offer bad by destroying them. Both powers are joined in the same concept or phenomena of the Jew being rooted or connected to all the Adamas. Also what's important to know is that Jews have enormous power because of their ontological connections throughout all creation. In other words, because a Jew is ontologically connected to all creation via his nefesh el his upper soul, the Jew has enormous power. They can rectify or destroy creation. This is the true importance of the Jew. But it is interesting that this enormous power of Tikkun that every Jew has, every male or female, every male from the age of 13 and every female from the age of 12 has this power. This enormous power of Tikkun is concealed from all ma- mankind and even from the Jew himself. The Jew himself does not know his awesome power, that in his hand lies the rectification of creation or the destruction of creation. Thus we see Jews have two identities. The first identity is called the national identity. And what this is, uh, is that the national identity is the fact that the Jewish nation is descended from a common ancestry namely Avram, Yitzchok, and Yaakov, and the Twelve Tribes. In other words, uh, the Jews have two identities, the first one being the national identities, because all Jews are descended from a common ancestry. And the second identity is called the spiritual identity, because the Jews as a nation, every member of that nation is connected existentially to all worlds. Every Jew is connected ontologically to all creation and therefore every Jew can affect and influence all creation either for good which is taken or for bad which is kukul. Two identities, a national identity and a spiritual identity. The national identity emanates from where Jews are derived from, their ancestors, and the spiritual identity is derived from their nature their spiritual nature, the fact that they have the power of Tikkun and Kilpo. The uniqueness and greatness of a Jew lies in his spiritual identity and not merely in his national identity. The real uniqueness of a Jew lies in what the Jew can do, not where the Jew has come from. And unfortunately, many people do not understand that, they don't see that. Now, I had mentioned previously a concept of Hanogas Yichud, which of course means those set of actions which is taken by the Rabbani Shalom that ensures or guarantees the Tikkun of creation. That's what Anagas HaYichur is. I mentioned previously, I gave an entire shir on that. It's a backup system where God, God wants to fulfill His will. And that is that there must be a congregation, a community, a nation in Ulam Haba that will receive His presence. That must be. It's what's called Kim Ritsoinoi. Therefore, there is activated what's called Anhagasa Yichud. Those set of actions which ensure that creation must reach its intended Tikkun. Now, Anhagasa Yichud ensures the Tikkun Hakloli. 
and what Tikkun HaKlali means, the total rectification of creation. And what Anhogas Yichud, of course, guarantees is that creation will have this Tikkun HaKlali. No matter what happens, there must be a Tikkun HaKlali. Creation must achieve a complete rectification. That is the guarantee that Anhogas Yichud provides. Now, since there must be a Tikkun, Tikkun HaKloli, right? That's what Hanogas HaYichud guarantees. Then there must be a Masakin or Masaknim to bring about this Tikkun. Obviously, if Hanogas HaYichud guarantees Tikkun HaKloli, then it must guarantee the existence of a Masakin. Because the only one who can bring about a Tikkun is a Masakin. Therefore, the logical deduction is that since Tikkun, the Tikkun HaKloli is guaranteed, <coughs> The Masakin, the existence of a Masakin also must be guaranteed. But if the existence of a Masakin is guaranteed, then obviously the survival of the Masakin also must be guaranteed. Because if the survival of he who could Masakin the Bria is not guaranteed, then obviously creation can never achieve its total Tikkun. So we see, therefore, that Hanogas Yichud, since it guarantees or ensures the Tikkun HaKloli, it must guarantee or ensure the existence or the presence of a Masakin. And since it guarantees the presence of a Masakin, it must guarantee the survival of that Masakin. Because then Tikkun HaKloli could never be guaranteed. But then who is the Masaknim of creation today? Jews. Therefore, and we're following it logically, and Hogus Yichud must guarantee the survival of the Jews as the Masaknim, so that they, by engaging in the Avedo, or instruments of Tikkun, can bring to reality the realization of the Tikkun HaKloli of creation. Thus, the survival of Jews to do the Avedo, to do, to engage in the instruments of Tikkun, and their ultimate reward of ushering in the messianic period and ushering in the future world is ensured not because they are Jews, but because they are Masaknim of creation. And we see that the Masaknim are guaranteed existence and survival because Anagos Yichud guarantees the Tikkun HaKloli. So we see the logical progression. <clears throat> Thus we see very interestingly that it is a spiritual identity of the Jews, not the national identity of the Jews. It is a spiritual identity of the Jews that ensures their survival, and not the, the national identity at all. This is a crucial and important idea to remember, especially for those who would denigrate and discount the spiritual aspect of the Jewish nation, and rather focus primarily on their national identity. You should know, if Jews only had a national identity and no spiritual identity at all, in other words, if Jews were only a nation, like other nations, and they were not Masaknim, they could not bring a Tikkun to the Bria, then they would be fated to join the long list of nations that have long ago faded into historical oblivion. Jews are not unique because they are descended from Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. They are unique because they can massacre the Bria. And of course, that comes from the Avedah of Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov. But if Jews 
had to rely on the merit of the fact that they came from Avram and Yitzchak and Yaakov. And if that reliance did not include the power of Tikkun, then they would disappear just like other nations. It is the fact that they are able to massacre the Bria that is what guarantees their existence. Because Anhogas Yichud guarantees what? The Tikkun Akloli, which guarantees the existence of a Masakin, which guarantees the survival of the Masakin, which guarantees the existence and the survival of the Jew because they are, or he is, that Masakin. That is why we must exist and we must eventually Masakin the Bria. Our uniqueness comes from the fact that we can massacre the Bria. It comes from our spiritual identity, not from our national identity. And those evil people that try to reduce Jewish nation to the same as all other nations, we are, are like all other nations, are making a fundamental error. Because Chas Vashom, if that ever comes about, which of course it can't, but that if that ever could come about, what that simply would mean is that we would then proceed on in the same historical um, progression, the same historical evolution as other nations. And we all know that what that means. That means ultimately to go into oblivion. Just like all the nations of antiquity eventually disappeared from the face of the earth. It is a spiritual identity of the Jews that makes the Jews so awesome and which ensures their survival and which makes them the recipient of an Hagasichud from the Rabban Islam. Now, these are some ideas of the Masaknim, the individuals, and of course at the present time it is the Jews. Uh, these are some of the ideas of the Masaknim, those peoples, those people, individuals that can actually bring a tikkun to creation. These are some of the ideas that I wanted to mention. Now, the next idea. I wanted to mention was the <coughs> third element in the Avoida paradigm or the Avoida model. First was the Masakin, the individual or individuals that can Masakin the Bria. The uh, next element of the paradigm is the Tikkun itself. Now, I had mentioned a term called Tikkun HaKloli. Now, what Tikkun HaKloli means is the total or the entire or the complete rectification or restoration of creation to its former original state. That is what the Tikkun HaKloli is. Now, what does it mean when I say uh, creation as it was in its original formal state? What was the original state of creation? Well, the formal state of creation, the former state of creation, was the unrestricted, totally revealed oneness of God the Gili Yehudoi of the Rabbani Shlam. In other words, it was a creation <clears throat> whereby an individual, a being that existed at that time, would perceive the absolute oneness of God. And I'd like to be more specific. Any being that existed at that time, at creation, when it was first created, in other words, any being that existed <clears throat> Uh, at the uh, the origin when creation was in its former original state, would perceive the Rabbanu Shlom in three uh, three ways. There would be three concepts or three perceptions that he would uh, grasp. What were they? The first is 
that he would perceive that God is existence itself. God is being. God does not have existence. God is existence. He is the concept being itself. Included in that idea that God is being and God does not have being is that God determines reality. He determines the form reality takes. God is not part of reality. He makes reality. A being that is existence decides the form existence takes. So therefore God is not governed by reality. He is not part of reality. God determines reality. He actually determines the form, the expression that reality takes. Very profound ideas. That is the first thing that a being that existed in creation, when it was uh, in its original state, that is the first thing that that being would perceive. That God is existence per se. Now the second thing that that being would perceive is that the Rabbanu Shalom is the ultimate, the literal source of all being and existence. In other words, that all beings emanate from Him, from the Rabbanu Shalom, and derive their very existence from God continuously. That is the second thing that that being would perceive. That all beings emanate from God, literally. That God is the ultimate source of all beings. And that all beings derive their existence from Him, and of course they derive their existence from Him continuously, even after they were brought into existence. That is the second thing He would perceive. Again, first, that God is existence. The second, that God is the ultimate literal source of existence of all beings outside of God. The third thing that He would perceive is that He would comprehend the truth and the nature of his own emanation from God. In other words, he would know of a certainty that he emanates from God and he would know the nature of that emanation, what it really means, what it really is, what, it, what, what does it consist of that he emanates from God, what exactly is going on. And interestingly enough, in the act of comprehending the emanation itself, he would be, it would be the understanding and realization of the most fundamental principle of all that we can comprehend about God. That besides God, there is nothing else. In other words, he would comprehend the absolute oneness of God. In other words, in the act of comprehending the truth and the nature of the emanation, of the being itself, he would comprehend that in truth he is not and God is. In other words, therein lies the hasog of Enu Mavadoi. In the actual comprehending of the nature of his emanation, to comprehend the nature of how he's connected to God, embedded in that comprehension is the hasoga, the comprehension. The understanding that that God is, and I who emanate really am not, even after the emanation. And that is really is the that? essence, that is really the essence of Ilum Habba, that idea. 
So in Ulam Habo, and that by the way is, or rather was, the original state of creation, as I had said long time ago, Ulam Habo means the world that came, because if it meant the future world, it would have meant, it said, Ulam Shiyavoy, the world that will come. Since it says Ulam Habo, it means the world that came. So this original intended state of creation, this state of creation whereby it actually enjoyed or was in the situation called Tikkun HaKloli uh, is the state of Gil Yehudoi, which is synonymous with Oilim Habo, which is synonymous with the eventual world when it will have received its Tikkun HaKloli. And we see that what that Tikkun HaKloli is. It is a state of creation whereby beings that exist in that state perceive that God is existence, that God is the source of all being, and not only that, but the beings comprehend the truth and the nature of their connection, their emanation from God, <clears throat> and as part and parcel of that comprehension is the idea of Enid Muvadoi, that in that emanation, <coughs> they perceive that God is and they are not. And that is really what happens in Ulam Habo, and of course that is what will be when the world will have achieved its Tikkun HaKloli, of course, and that will be uh, uh, the future world, Olam Haba. That is basically what Tikkun HaKloli is, and that is the state that the universe assumes when there will be a complete rectification or uh, restoration of creation to its former original state, the state of unrestricted, total Gili Yehudoi. And therefore, that will uh, engender in beings that are in that state of Gil Yehudoi, the ultimate understanding or Hasogis Yehudoi. Now, the Rabbani Shalom concealed his nature, in other words, the key idea of Eneid Mavadoi, or rather he concealed the nature, in other words, what a Nivra could comprehend about it, what a created being could comprehend about his nature. He concealed that nature. And we know that nature, of course, the essence of that nature is Enoid Mavadoid, that besides God there is nothing else. The Rebbe concealed that nature, and he also concealed his relationship with his creation. And what is that? That he is the source of all being. And he concealed this, of course, from mankind. Now, creation, when it is in a state of concealment, it is called the state of chesaron or deficiency. And of course, if man sins, then it is called a state of kilkul. In other words, creation can get even more, uh, can, can actually experience a greater concealment as a result of the sins of man. That is called kilkul. Now, the task of man, as a masakin, is to restore the original former state of gili chudoi, from the present state of Hesti Yehudoi. This is what Tikkun HaKloli essentially means. And I don't think I could be more precise about what Tikkun HaKloli is. Tikkun HaKloli, again, in summary, means the total, complete, entire rectification of creation. <clears throat> it is the restoration <coughs> of creation to its former original state. And that state was what's called Gili Yehudoi, where beings in that state could perceive God as being itself, they could perceive God as a source of all being, and they could perceive God, of course, 
or as or rather they could perceive their emanation from God and they would automatically in that comprehension perceive the truth of Enid Mavadoi. And that state of course is, uh, is called Tikkun Akroli and God concealed that state. He took the Tikkun of the world and he made it deficient so therefore the state of the world became Chasarn and it is our job to remove the Chasarn to remove the Hesti Yechudoi, the concealment of his absolute oneness and to restore the universe or rather creation to its original state of Gili Yechudoi and that is Tikkun HaKroli and that of course is exactly what Oilem Habo is all about. I now wish <coughs> to discuss and elaborate the concept of the Oifen of Tikkun or the manner, the mode or the method uh, of bringing about a Tikkun to creation. This mode of Tikkun is called the Avodah and consists of all those observances, actions and behaviors that can serve as instruments for achieving Tikkun. Now one important idea that I want to mention. Obviously, without the implementation of the Avodah, a Masakin can do nothing for creation. In other words, even though a person has the ability and the power to Masakin, Without the avoider, he can do nothing. Without the correct instrument, what can a person do? <clears throat> it's like a doctor. Without his tools of surgery, he cannot perform surgery, even though he knows how. <clears throat> Tikkun Akroli can never be achieved if the Masaknim will not engage in doing the avoider or the instruments of Tikkun. Only those observances that comprise the avoider can serve as instruments to Masakin creation. No other actions performed by a Masakin will achieve a Tikkun. It's as simple as that. That's important to remember. There are no substitute instruments. Either you do the Avodah, those are observances that serve as instruments for Tikkun. If you don't do the Avodah, if you think you can supplant it with some other act, you're making a big mistake. Only those acts which comprise the Avedo and therefore serve as instruments for Tikkun, that is the only things that will bring a Tikkun. If you want to substitute them or supplant them with something else, you are making a gross error. That's very important to know. Only the Avedo can bring a Tikkun to creation, nothing else. <coughs> there is no room for creativity in the sense that you could supplant what is stated to be the Avedah. <coughs> the Tikkun Akroli can be realized only by particular observances done only by Masakin and by no other kind of actions and behaviors, even if executed by Masakin. Thus, if Jews cease to do these observances, or rather those observances that comprise the Avedah, then there can, there can be no Tikkun for creation whatsoever. In other words, no instrument, no avoider, no tikkun outcome. It's as simple as that. You can be a masakin, you can have the enormous powers of tikkun and kilkul, but if there is no avoider, no instrument, then there is no tikkun outcome. It's as simple as that. There is no substitute, you cannot supplant it with something else. You must engage in the avoider itself, because that is the only instrument for tikkun. And that is very important to remember, especially many people try to introduce new ideas and new methods and so on, which are contradictory to the Avodah. 
That will not work. You must stick to the avoid itself. Important to remember. Let us now proceed to gain some kind of understanding of the instrument of Tikkun, the method whereby the creation is brought to what's called the Tikkun Haklali. In other words, some kind of description of the Avoida itself, or those observances, actions, or behaviors that can actually serve as instruments for achieving Tikkun. There are seven terms which embody significant concepts as relates to the Avoida, or instrument of Tikkun. And I want to address myself to these seven terms and use them sort of as a uh, guiding um, uh, structure whereby I can then unfold the ideas of the Avoida or the instrument of Tikkun. <clears throat> what are these seven terms? These seven terms are as follows. The first one is called the instrumental essence. The second term is called instrumental principle. The third is the instrumental forms. The fourth term is instrumental subjects. The fifth term is instrumental outcome. The sixth term is the instrumental objective. And the seventh term is the instrumental historical progression. An understanding of each and every term provides one with a comprehensive and profound understanding of all the Avoida parameters or the Avoida paradigm or model which I had mentioned previously. In other words, if we can come to grasp what these terms mean, then we will really understand the concept of the Avoida itself, the concept of the instrument of Tikkun, that device which brings the world to Tikkun Hakroli. Now, <coughs> A short review or a brief summary of previously enumerated and stated concepts is appropriate in order to facilitate comprehension of these terms concerning the Avedu or the instrument of Tikkun. And that's really what I'd like to do. Just a really short, brief review um, of ideas that probably most of you are familiar with from previous Shuram. And actually, uh, some of these ideas I had stated at the beginning of uh, the uh, series on meditation. But since <clears throat> that year, which is a long time ago, I just want to review very briefly some of these ideas. And from that, that will serve as a platform from which we can spring into the entire concept of the Avoida. <clears throat> and remember, we are trying to understand the subject, the idea of the Avoida, or the instrument of Tikkun, in order to understand where does meditation uh, uh, have a role in this area of Avedah. Now, Ulam Hazer, this present world, has two states that apply to it. <clears throat> These two states revolve or pivot around the degree or amount of divine presence that can be, that can be perceived in it by mankind, the inhabitants of Ulam Hazer. In other words, Ulam Hazer, which is really creation in the present, uh, at the present time, has basically two states which are applicable to it. And basically these two states are really reflections of what's called the degree of Yehud manifestation in creation. Thus Ulam Hazer has two existential states of Yehud manifestations which are applicable to it. Now initially Ulam Hazer was created with some degree of the concealment of the absolute oneness of the Rabbanu Shalom 
or that the Rabboni Shalom is the ultimate source and master of all things. <clears throat> this was embedded in Ilm Hazir, that the absolute oneness of God and that, his, that he is the ultimate source and master of all beings, this was concealed initially in Ilm Hazir. This is called Hesti Yehudai. This is the initial state of Ilm Hazir as regards the parameter of Yehud manifestations. This state of Hesti Yehudai was imparted to Ilm Hazir by the Rabbi Islam for the sole purpose of giving man a deficiency so that he, man, could now labor to remove and thereby earn reward for his efforts. That's the reason why this Hesti Yehudoi was imparted to Ilm Hazeh, is that Ilm Hazeh should have this deficiency, this chesarn, and as a result of this deficiency, man would then have a situation where he could labor to remove this deficiency, and thereby he would earn reward for, of course, for all these efforts. Thus, Ilm Hazeh was created at the outset of creation, with the deficiency or chesarn, that's what it's called, the chesarn of Hesti Yehudai, the concealment of the oneness of God. That was the initial state of Ulam Hazer. Then it was made possible for man to either add to this chesarn, to this deficiency. In other words, man could increase the degree of Hesti Yehudai, he could increase the degree of the concealment of the oneness of God by inappropriate behaviors or actions. Or, on the reverse side, he could decrease the degree or amount of Hesti Yehudai by appropriate behaviors, thereby changing the state of Ilm Hazer from one of Hesti Yehudai to one of Gil Yehudai. In other words, man has one of two choices. Either he could increase the amount of Hesti Yehudai, the concealment of the oneness of God, or he can decrease that Hester, uh, Yehudai, in other words, he can initiate, rather, a gili chudai, the uh, revelation of the oneness of God. If man chose to increase the degree of hesti chudai by engaging in inappropriate actions, then he would be mechalkal creation. Over and above the original chesan or the original deficiency, this increased man-made hesti chudai is thus called kilkal. That is actually the technical term for it. Kilkel is the increased Hester that man produces as a result of his inappropriate behaviors and actions. And the truth is that this Kilkel, which refers to the Hester which man contributes to creation, this Kilkel is to be distinguished from the initial original divine made Hester Yehudai, which is called Chesan. So therefore, the initial state of creation was a state of Hester Yehudai, which is of course the concealment of the absolute oneness of God, and this is called chesarn. And of course, man can contribute to this uh, by doing inappropriate behaviors and actions, and then this, renew this added hesti chudoy, this added concealment of the oneness of God, is called then kilkel, damage that man has actually wrought to creation. If man, on the other hand, chooses to engage in specific appropriate behaviors, then Oylem Hazer would go from a state of Hesti Chudoi, concealment of the oneness of God, to one of Gili Chudoi, or a state of the revelation of the oneness of God, as a result of his actions. Thus Oylem Hazer 
would achieve a tikkun, a rectification, a restoration, a fixing or a repairing. Tikkun means all of these. In other words, Oilim Hazer would achieve this tikkun or restoration from the original initial chesarn and also possibly kilkul or damage increments or additions that man contributed to it by engaging in inappropriate behaviors. In other words, Oilim Hazer would achieve a tikkun from the original initial chesarn because it now is in a state of gili yechudoi rather than in a state of hesti yechudoi which it originally started out in and thereby was identified as possessing a chasan. This state where Oilam Hazet is, is in a situation of Gili Yehudoi is called Tikkun, restoration, rectification, or the more specific term is called Tikkun HaKloli, the total, complete, or entire rectification or restoration of creation. That's what Tikkun HaKloli means. means. And Tikkun HaKloli is applied when the world, Ulam Hazer, is in a state of Gili Yehudai, the revelation of the absolute oneness of God. Now, as was seen before, this Tikkun HaKloli is guaranteed to occur by virtue of the Anhogase Yichud. And I had explained that previously. The Tikkun HaKloli state is the terminal or ultimate state of Ulam Hazer and must occur because of Anhogasi Yichud. Therefore we see the following consequences, or the following ideas. That Oilam Hazet will go through two states as regards the degree of Yichud manifestation present in it. The first state that it will uh, uh, begin, actually, it will begin in, is the initial state of Hesti Yichudoi, the concealment of the Absolute Oneness of God, the chesaron of creation, that's the first state. In other words, the initial state is Hesti Yechudoi, which of course is the deficiency or chesaron of creation. And the second state of Oilam Hazer is a terminal, ultimate, guaranteed state of Gil Yechudoi or Tikkun HaKloli. These are the two states that Oilam Hazer will go through. When Oilam Hazer is in a state of Gil Yechudoi, the revelation of the oneness of God, then all recipients of that Gil Yechudoi are experiencing Hasogas Yechudoi, the comprehension of the absolute oneness of the Rabban Shalom. That's what happens when the world is in a state of Tikkun HaKloli, or in a state of Gil Yechudoi, that the recipients in this world, of this Giloi, are actually experiencing the comprehension of the, of the uh, concept of the oneness of God. Thus the phenomenon of Hasogas Yechudoi occurs when Ulam Hazer is in a state of Gil Yechudoi, or it has achieved the Tikkun HaKloli. When an individual is in a true state of Hasogas Yechudoi, he is said to be Dovak to the Rabbana Shalom, or to be experiencing the Dvekas state. That is really what Hasogas Yechudoi is. Hasogas Yechudoi is an experience that an individual goes through. The term for that experience is really called Dvekus. Thus the Dvekas state comprises the Hasogas Yechudoi of that individual. They are really identical. Dvekus is the comprehension of God. Except you have to remember that in Eilim Habo, when a person is Masik the Yichud of the Rabbani Shalom, he does not do it via his brain. It's not something he experiences because he is able to reason or think, comprehend with his mind. 
It's not even something that he experiences through emotions. He experiences it from being to being, which is something which is not comprehensible to us. In other words, he experiencing, experiences Hasagas Yichudoi by virtue of his being, and not through the faculties of mind or the faculties of emotion. In any case, <clears throat> Hasagas Yichudoi is the experience that is identical with the state of Dvekus. Now this state of Dvekus, the experiencing of, of Hasagas Yichudoi by man, is the true ultimate objective of creation and is the real purpose of creation. This is it. It's like they say the bottom line. The bottom line of creation is that there should be recipients experiencing Hasagas Yichudoi, or, to put another way, the bottom line of creation is that there should be recipients in a state of Dvekus, in the Dvekus state. They should be clinging or in some way attached to God. Because dvekus means an attachment or clinging to something. And when we say that an individual is in, an, in, is in a dvekus state, what we really mean is that this individual is clinging or is attached to Rabbi Islam. And he, he does it by his experiencing the yichud of the Rabbi Islam. So Asagas Yichudoi, the experiencing of that, gives rise to the dvekus state. And that is the ultimate purpose of all creation. Very important to know. All other imagined goals that people have are really false. And their pursuit is a waste of time and the height of folly. People have all kinds of ideas <clears throat> about what the purpose of creation is. Uh, some people think the purpose of creation is the purpose of man is to pursue happiness, to be happy. Some people think it's to be productive, to achieve great things, great material things. Some people think it's to benefit mankind. Some people think it's to uh, reach great philosophical understanding of what the world is and so on. The truth is it's none of these. Some of these ideas are really emtsoim, methods by which one reaches the ultimate, uh, uh, the ultimate purpose of creation. And that ultimate purpose of creation is that you, the recipient, should be in a dvekis state at a certain time, and that time is Ilm Habbat. That's it. Dvekis is the name of the game. That's what it's all about. And the idea of Dvekis is that you cling or attach to God by virtue of your comprehending His oneness. And as I said previously, in Ilm Habbat, man will know the truth and the nature of his emanation from God Himself. That is what Dvekas is. The comprehension of the truth and the very nature of your emanation from the Rabbani Shalom. And that will reflect itself in two ways. One, you will know who God is in relation to yourself. And you will know who you are in relation to God. You will know that He is the source of your being. And He is the master of all being. That's He in relation to you. And you will know you in relation to He that He is existence per se, that He truly is, He really exists, that nothing else exists besides Him, and that you are really an emanation from Him. So you know really both of these ideas. And that is all part of the knowledge of the emanation, which you will comprehend in Ilam Haba. That state is called Vekus state, 
And the experiencing of that, of course, is called Hasaki Sichudoi, and that is the ultimate purpose of man, and that is really what Gil Yehudoi, or the Tikkun Akloli, is supposed to get you.